Welcome back to Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. When was the last time you thought about where your food comes from? And I don't mean from your local supermarket. Well, according to the UN Food and Agriculture Association, 70% of food consumed globally comes from so-called smallholder farmers. There are an estimated 570 million of them, and nearly half live and operate in the world's poorest countries. In most developing markets, agriculture contributes anywhere from 15 to 35% of GDP. Without this constellation of farming communities, unemployment would soar and economies would crumble. Not surprisingly, there's a political dimension to supporting the smallholder farmer. This requires governments throughout the region to make constant adjustments, balancing local subsidies against foreign food imports. Into this socio-economic brew enters Corteva AgriScience, a company that a little over two years ago spun off from the chemical giant Dow DuPont in order to focus exclusively on agribusiness. Today, the company produces high-yield, pest-resistant hybrid seeds, land management technologies, and digital solutions. As my guest Elizabeth Hernandez explains, the timing and focus of their market entry offers a unique opportunity for farmers and investors alike. This is the latest in a series of episodes we have planned featuring companies that are delivering on corporate purpose. Two episodes back, we featured another corporate purpose leader, T.C. Young, Asia-Pacific Managing Director of the iconic tech company HP. If you missed that episode, you can listen or read about it by going to www.insideasiapodcast.com. In coming weeks, we will feature on this program conversations with leaders of other purpose-driven institutions. Our discussions are founded on in-depth case studies created in a three-way partnership between Inside Asia, the Conference Board, and the Center for Creative Leadership. One year ago, we came together to introduce the Asia Corporate Leadership Council, which today is comprised of 20-plus Asia-based CEOs, regional managing directors, and heads of family-run businesses. It's a select group of senior individuals representing best practice corporate purpose. The case studies in these accompanying podcasts are designed to demonstrate what corporate purpose in action looks like. Before turning to my discussion with Elizabeth, a brief word about our sponsor, Quilt AI, also a purpose-driven organization. Quilt is a mission-first technology company that helps large organizations use the internet more purposefully. It's looking to reverse fractures in society and generate empathy while helping organizations understand their consumers and beneficiaries much better. They give time and money to causes they care about and in service to people and planet. Inside Asia is pleased to be associated with Quilt AI. For more information, do check them out at quilt.ai. Elizabeth Hernandez, thank you so much for joining us on Inside Asia. Thank you for having me. Tell us about Corteva's origins. Thank you. Well, Corteva AgriScience is a relatively new company, just a little bit over two years old. We were spun off by the, from the Dow and DuPont merger in 2017, and we became a new agriculture company on June 1st, 2019. Why at that point Corteva decided that corporate purpose was going to be part of the agenda? Well, as a new company, we had a unique opportunity to reset and, and really think of what kind of a company do we want to be. And uh, I, I hear this story from, from the uh, original leadership, like uh, 
Peter Ford, our Asia Pacific president, where they spent three days on a retreat in a farm, the Chesapeake Farms in Maryland, where they really spent that time discussing what kind of a company they wanted to be, what would be the focus of the company. And what they focused on was really the purpose. First and foremost, that was the first order of business. And the purpose they came up with is to enrich the lives of those who produce and those who consume, mm. ensuring progress for generations to come. So from the very beginning, sustainability was built into the DNA of the company that they envisioned. Moreover, the name Corteva stands for core, heart, and Teva, nature. I mean, it's, it's, it's a perfect marketing story in so many ways, but in, in other ways, was it a countermeasure to show that companies born of a global chemicals company could operate under a new set of business objectives? I think it's um, maybe because the fact that we are a pure play agriculture company, so we could focus primarily on the farmer. I mean, we talk about putting the farmer at the heart of the business, and when you do that, it puts a completely different perspective, whereas previously, the legacy companies were smaller divisions of a big conglomerate. It's a very different perspective. So today, we're very proud of being a pure play agriculture company. Yeah. How did you establish uh, 10-year sustainability goals? In other words, uh, how did the company align its growth priorities with its sustainability goals? Well, like most companies, before we even spun off Corteva, we started with a materiality assessment. So really looking at what are the things that, that matter, right, for our, our, throughout the company, our products, our R&D, our uh, operations, but then also when it comes to the farmers and the farmers that we train, how they use our products and solutions and the practices that's necessary and the impact that has on the land. So when we came up with the goals, you'll notice that we've got 14 goals for our 2030 sustainability commitments, but they're aligned around four goal pillars. So there are goals for the farmer, very focused on the farmer training, especially the smallholder farmers here in Asia. Then you've got goals for the land, like soil health, water stewardship, biodiversity, then goals for the community, because we know that when we impact the farmer, it has an impact on the rest of the communities, you know, the women, the children, and, and uh, the communities in which we operate. And finally, the goals for our operations. That's everything from our manufacturing of our crop protection products, the seed production, you know, the way we use recycling uh, materials in our uh, manufacturing, as well as most importantly, sustainable innovation. That's really our pipeline, and that's a, a key part of our commitment to sustainability. Yeah, you, you and I have spoken at length about uh, how corporate purpose is only as good as its execution. Um, as you went to market and thought about how you were aligning these objectives um, with your business against the, the sustainability goals, um, what were some of the decisions you took? Um, why, for instance, and we're going to talk a little bit about Indonesia, why did was that a, a place in your mind, at least in the Asia-Pacific theater, that you thought you could make a difference? I think um, purpose is probably not completely new, but perhaps it has a, a renewed focus from companies today. Earlier versions of it, I think you saw companies doing good through their CSR, right, corporate um, social responsibility programs, where you've already earned the value and you're sharing some of that value with the communities in which you serve. But the approach we took this time was to really look at how to embed sustainability and that purpose into the operations and into the products and solutions of the company. So that if you do that, 
then you don't really need to think about it. It's already part of what you do every day. And every single member of the team is contributing to that corporate purpose. So, so there was advantage in being spun out and ha- having that independence in a way that other conglomerates or multinationals with multiple div- divisions may not be able to do these types of things. Is that right? Exactly. I like to think of it like my mom uh, used to sew my dresses. And if I came to her and said, can you adjust this, please make it smaller, make it bigger because I've put on weight. She'd always tell me, you know what, it's a lot easier for me to make you a new dress than to try to fix that one. Yeah. And that's exactly right. When you have the opportunity to reset, which was unique in our history, then you can embed that purpose from the very beginning into the DNA. And I think now, two years on, we're starting to see that employees, even the ones from the legacy companies who may have been a bit skeptical about it in the beginning, are now really becoming believers and really looking at opportunities to to even scale what we're doing on a day-to-day basis. I mean, the biggest frustration now is not being able to get out in the field and serve the farmers, right? Because that's really the source of inspiration even for employees. Yeah, you referenced earlier communities, uh, assisting and participating in communities, which is one of the stakeholder groups uh, under the whole ESG paradigm. Tell us why or how, first of all, how Corteva traditionally operated when it first started working and how it's using some of these new methods and corporate purpose uh, to extend its capabilities into those communities. I think when you look at the legacy companies of Corteva, the focus was primarily on farm, right? Because that's where our products are. It's used on farm. And so everything that happens post-harvest, that's not necessarily part of our business. Today, and again, going back to the purpose of enriching the lives of both those who produce and those who consume, we're recognizing that it's not enough for us to look at what happens on the farms, but also connecting that to the market. So looking at the consumers as well. Because if you think of our products and solutions for farmers, you can improve their yield and their productivity, but it stops there. Unless they're able to connect that to the market, then you don't actually increase their profitability. And that's what they need, right? They can't just increase their yield. They need to actually connect that to the market to be able to enrich those farmers. So how did farmers buy from you prior? So it varies from country to country, Steve. In in some markets, we have direct engagement with the uh, with the farmers, and we'll do uh, training programs on the field, demonstrations, so they see that, but they will still have to go get the products from a network of retail outlets that we have. And so in rural India, for example, or Indonesia, there would be hundreds and thousands of these retail kiosks in the rural areas where they can buy the product. But they may engage with Corteva uh, salespeople or even our um, contractors that are doing the training out in the field, because you have to have hundreds and thousands of these people to do that. Yeah. Uh, What's the life of a farmer like in a place like Indonesia? Well, uh, it depends. I guess uh, which kind of farmer, right? We'll focus on the smallholder farmer because if you're talking about Asia, the majority of farmers are smallholder farmers. So you're talking about someone who has maybe two acres of land or less, or I'm sorry, two hectares of land and or, or less. And um, like in a place like Madura, Indonesia, we'll be focused on the average income from uh, a hectare of uh, cornfield using the local varieties was something like $175 a month, right? And so 
it's not much. And when you have the family, the the wife and kids to to feed and to send to school, it's really, really difficult for them to get out of of poverty. And our goal is to really look for a way that the farmer can use better technologies to increase that yield, increase his income or her income, and be able to, again, uplift the entire family, send their kids to school. Yeah, so for those who are familiar with industrial-scale farming in China or, or part, large parts of Europe or the United States, um, you have to look at this through a different lens. Um, this is an entirely different set where I understand uh, up to 30% of Indonesia's workforce uh, is in agriculture, contributes about 13% to GDP. Uh, it's a substantial part of the economy and a part of the population. So um, when you speak about communities and these farming communities, we're talking about large swaths of land most of Southeast Asia. Uh, this is this would be true in, in other places like Myanmar and Thailand and, and Philippines to some degree, correct? Yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So, so you, you identified a, 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 a district or a, a part of Indonesia in order to test uh, one of your programs. Tell us about that. Well, we, we had an opportunity because we were approached by a, a local NGO, actually Prisma, a market systems development organization that was uh, supported by both the Australian and Indonesian governments. And their task was really to raise the incomes of of the rural poor by looking at uh, connecting them to better technologies. And in this case of Madura, they were looking for uh, a corn seed uh, manufacturer, which we are hybrid corn in particular, that would then could be introduced and increase the yield of the farmers and enrich uh, those communities. And Madura, um, it's uh, I should tell you, it's a little, it's part of East Java, but whereas East Java, the mainland, had already a high rate of hybridization, where the farmers had converted to the hybrid corn seed technology and were getting much better yields, Madura being an island was isolated from that and did not have the same access to that technology. And as a result, there was less than 20% of the farmers using hybrid seed technology, so their yield were probably half the rate of East Java. So just by introducing hybrid corn seeds, you could actually hope to increase their yields and their incomes as a result. So Prisma guided you to this community, and, and you refer to them as a market to systems development group. That's not your average NGO. Could you explain that? Yes, definitely. Uh, I was actually surprised the first time I met them in 2018 because it was meeting a group of MBAs and they were talking about the business case for Madura. It was very much pitching to us of how we could grow our business in Madura by working with them. And because normally Madura was uh, not necessarily a, uh, shall we say, a high priority target uh, segment for us, but because of their help on the ground, they invited us to come and explore Madura together. The NGO used language that you could understand. Yes, (laughs) definitely. It's a very different experience for me. Yeah. Now, that's a unique situation, and therefore it just felt comfortable. It felt like an interesting and an opportune moment to step in and test one of your theories around what you could do in a community environment. What did you then do? Well, we um, selected the communities that part of Madura that we would target and working with them, they they brought tremendous local knowledge. The market research are very data-driven organization, uh, Prisma. So through the information they provided us, we were able to then plan out some um, new marketing techniques that we could do to approach Madura. As I told you earlier, it's a, a rather... Um, 
isolated and very traditional uh, set of farmers there. And in fact, pre previously, we had tried to sell our products in Madura and we were not that successful. So we, we were not, uh, that's why we were c contemplating even not uh, being in Madura at all. But with, uh, with um, let me give you some examples that Prisma offered. You know, one of the things that I think a very important insight is we think of the men in the field as a people, as the farmers, and focus on them. But actually, one of the key insights that I learned from them was that actually it's the woman at home who is a key decision maker when it came to investing money into the agriculture inputs. Mm -hmm. So that completely changes who you approach, how you sell, and who you need to convince, right? So one of the things we did is make sure we had frontliners that were women, that the women at home would be comfortable talking to them, even inviting them at home for coffee sometimes, and have a chat about their farm or their aspirations, what they want for their family, what they're saving for, and how they budget their family um, their their family expenses. So it's really market research. It's going right to the ground level to understand what does the end user want? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Another thing they might introduce is uh, Cortava is used to doing uh, large plot demonstrations, right? We want to convince farmers of our products. We need to do that demonstration, but it's usually out in the field. But Prisma instead encourages us to set up this mini demo plot competition right in front of the homes of the community. So everyone, as you walk that street every day, you could see how much corn was growing in your mini plot. And they did that so the whole community was not only engaged in knowing about the potential for hybrid corn, but they could see it every day. Yeah, how tall is your corn? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, and then we chose whoever had the highest yield was the one that eventually had the big uh, demonstration plot and could invite everyone else to come yeah. to his or her plot to see the results. You know, Elizabeth, when I hear this story, I just think this is just good business development. You know, just very thoughtful, data-driven, community-based, understanding what your customer wants and giving them what they want. Um, I, I, when I, what's so intriguing about this story is that it aligns so nicely with the end game, which is to raise the quality of um, the farmers' lives. Um, is, and, and, and talk to us about that. So, so how was it working before? Um, where were they getting the money to buy the seed? And how did you introduce other partners to the formula? The key is the approach Prisma took is a value chain, right? They really look at end-to-end. -end. So they invited Corteva in as the ag input provider, but they also looked at the off-takers. Who's buying that corn? And then once they have that guaranteed market, then they were able to bring in the financing company. Um, BNI, which is Bank Tengar Indonesia, was able to come in and provide those loans to the farmers. So it really completed the ecosystem that they needed. So they needed the guarantee that, that once they grew it, that they could sell it. Once the banks knew that they had a guarantee on the sale, they would come in to, to secure that, that loan to the farmers. And the farmers were then therefore able to increase their savings as a result. Aren't they then wed to a cycle of um, debt and, and repayment? Or how do they get out of the lending side of the equation? Well, as of, uh, in that particular project in Madura, out of nearly 20,000 farmers, they were able to increase their income by 248%. Mm -hmm. So with that uh, increase in income, enough profits for them to be able to set aside for the next season. Yeah. And how many families were impacted by this program? 
about 20,000 farmers, and you imagine uh, easily uh, each of the families, uh, each of the farmers would have a, a family of five. So, so now that the program has demonstrated a result and you have the confidence um, and belief of not only the banks, but the farmers and all the inter- intermediaries, what's the next biggest challenge for you all in order to be able to, to take this forward? So we started this program in 2017, really late 2017. And what we've done is we've increased the number of uh, districts that are covered by the Prisma Partnership. And in fact, what we're doing also is working with them. We're looking at uh, a similar program and expanding into rice. So not just for corn, but in the rice uh, segments. But one element that would be very valuable for us uh, is to also look at the ecosystem. You know, are there other partners that could really make it a more complete ecosystem so that even after uh, Prisma, for example, is no longer there, because that's an ongoing program supported by uh, the Australian and Indonesian governments, how do you ensure that it's a sustainable ecosystem, mm-hmm. that the market forces are going to work on its own without that? And so until you start seeing the increase in income, and you have to think of these farmers you know, with increased disposable income also as consumers, mm. right? How does that create that economy in Madura and, and, and how that connects to the larger province of East Java? So I think looking at uh, a better financing schemes that can provide them that they will use to buy other you know, needs of the, of the family. I think of the, the way these farmers are become the lead farmers that then train other farmers. Because remember, we only focus on certain uh, areas of Madura, but how do you then scale by using them, their success stories to convince other farmers? Easily, like one of the women that I met, Ibu Masiro, and, and she was one who had a very successful harvest. And when I met her, she was training 15 other women in the room on about corn harvest. and. And that's how farmers learn. They they learn from each other. And so using them as, as uh, lead farmers are the most effective way to, to scale and expand the program. Yeah, there's that, there's that word scale. So if you think of the hundreds of thousands of farmers all across Southeast Asia, and any of whom could benefit from something like this, how do you scale something like this um, by finding uh, another hundred prismas in different locations to carry out the same type of due diligence as, as they did in, in, in uh, East Java? The best way really is the word of mouth of farmers, mm. surprisingly. Even in places like India, where we use those lead farmers, we would, might have 60,000 of them that do that, right? So with each of the lead farmers, you can, you can expect them to influence 30 to 50 other farmers. Mm. And, and they value that kind of judgment. You know, we introduce in agriculture, there's so many um, apps that are developed for to bring information to farmers. And you'd be surprised that in Southeast Asia, the number of those apps that, that get used versus like just a WhatsApp, you know, yeah. group from farmers. Because at the end of the day, you can have all of that technology and that knowledge, but what they value and believe in and trust, it's still the other farmer. Yeah, each and other. And seeing the other farmers' field and the impact of, you know, whether the better seeds or better crop protection products and practices on that farmer's uh, uh, yield year on year. Yeah. How has this program inspired or motivated um, the employees of Corteva? Well, right now, I think the, the biggest impact is really understanding the concept of shared value. You know, when we first talked about shared value, people had a, a difficulty Uh, believing that that could be that you could bring sustainability and you could bring uh, value to these farmers within the business right in in in, embedded in the business model and in madura by being able to show that you know these 20,000 farmers increase their 
their income on average of 248%, while at the same time, our business in Maduro grew 278%. It can happen. You can do good while doing good business. And if we can do that in every other country where we operate, imagine the potential. So this is really inspiring to employees because now when they look at programs like this, then they look at how do we make this possible? How do we embed that sustainability into our programs. And we're doing this in India right now. That's where our next big project, and I'm doing something in Vietnam. And it's all around this idea of bringing the best of our um, technology solutions, the practices, the training that we can provide farmers, and connecting with other partners in the value chain to be able to not only increase their yield, but more importantly, increase their profitability. Is this a purely for-profit or private sector play, or should governments in Indonesia, Vietnam, India start to realize that there's public-private partnership opportunities here that could perpetuate and actually uh, scale these type of endeavors? Are, Are you looking to bring them into this discussion or not yet? There are definitely areas where the government uh, can play, and particularly in the infrastructure in rural communities. When you think of uh, post-harvest you know, needs, and a lot of times the reason you've got such huge waste in agriculture is because of the inability of these smallholder farmers to get their products to market at the, at, you know, in, in time. I saw that particularly during COVID, Right. And during the lockdowns and the difficulty and the challenge of that. So focusing on the logistics, uh, when you think of digital skills and and digital infrastructure, um, when we went into the COVID lockdowns, a lot of um, effort was done to move that engagement with farmers, that communication on a digital uh, platform. But the challenge was in some of the rural areas, they don't have the connectivity to be able to access that even if you did have a smartphone. And so you relied on maybe SMS, but in whereas in countries like China, for example, we were having thousands of farmers connected on a video live stream in the middle of the field mm-hmm. because they can, they can get that kind of connectivity. We don't have that in Southeast Asia and, and India is also not that well connected. Yeah, so message to governments, if you are gonna deploy capital, do it in the force and of of uh, communications or other forms of infrastructure. Yeah, because I think otherwise we're creating, uh, you know, reinforcing the digital divide, right? Because uh, it's not just you and me working from home that need connectivity. It's also farmers needing information on the markets, needing to information on their loans, you know, whether the trends, commodity prices, or even weather information. So they're just as dependent on that information that you can access via the internet. Elizabeth, fabulous story. Thank you so much for taking time and sharing it. Thank you. That was my conversation with Elizabeth Hernandez, Asia-Pacific Head of External Affairs and Sustainability for Corteva AgriScience and a founding member of the Singapore-based Asia Corporate Leadership Council. Elizabeth and Corteva's Asia-Pacific president, Peter Ford, are two within a growing legion of Asia-based leaders determined to bring corporate purpose to life. The Corteva story is compelling in a number of ways. First, in its ability to extend its reach into farm communities in order to raise living standards. Second, in how it partners with on-the-ground NGOs that use a so-called market systems development or MSD approach, which factors in market access and good business practices to create sustainable programs. And third, at least in their pilot program, they focus on women farmers. Perhaps it comes as no surprise that while women in the developing world do much of the farm work, few enjoy the same ownership rights as men. In effect, they've been overlooked. 
give them some attention and training and tailor incentives to meet their needs and interests, and the results speak for themselves. Indeed, time and time again, farming experiments that target women have shown that if there's a better way to farm and make money doing it, women are quick to embrace it. For the record, the MSD approach is nothing new. Programs from Bangladesh to Sierra Leone have been deployed to try to educate and equip farmers using science, technology, and good old economics to drive behavior change. Lifting poor farmers out of a repeated poverty cycle is the end game. Governments and NGOs have been the primary sponsors of MSD-led programs. Business, at least until recently, has resisted getting too involved, preferring to remain at arm's length. Corteva is proving that by injecting commercial practices and creating the right operating ecosystem, an organization can be purpose-driven and profitable. It poses an interesting question. Has a time come for NGOs of all ilk and breed to rethink their own operating model? Is it possible or even reasonable for nonprofits to rely year-on-year for government and foundation support? COVID has only made things worse. Government coffers throughout the developing world are running low. Economies are sluggish. And as long as the pandemic keeps raising its head, prospects for anything north of 3% GDP growth in the next few years remains bleak. If ever there were a time for businesses to get involved in changing the conditions in poor communities around the world, this is it. What's required is a new corporate mindset, a clear corporate purpose agenda, and the identification of effective on-the-ground partners like Prisma, who can help companies navigate and seize upon areas where they can make the biggest difference. There isn't a company on earth incapable of leveraging a core competency, product, process, or competitive advantage to make a difference. Sometimes good business means doing the right thing in order to create the right long-term conditions for growth and prosperity for everyone. That's it for this week's episode of Inside Asia. We have more stories to share on how corporate purpose gets done in Asia. If you and your organization want to know more about corporate purpose or you feel that you might benefit in joining the Asia Corporate Leadership Council, reach out to us. In the meantime, please share this podcast with your colleagues. We have over 180 episodes available on our website or wherever you search for and listen to your podcasts. Prefer reading to listening? Then subscribe to the Inside Asia newsletter. Visit us at www.insideasiapodcast.com. Leave your name and email address and start receiving weekly updates that highlight key points from our discussion, provide links to additional insights and articles, and reference earlier podcasts on related subjects. As always, we thank you for listening. Thank you.